What's up, everybody? This is Grant, that cause artist. Welcome to another episode of the Disruptors for Good podcast. Today, we're going to chat with Daniel Lloyd, the founder and president of Minority Millennials. The organization was founded to bridge the gap between policy and culture, with the main focus being, you know, representing minorities and millennials and policies that impact their future, our future, you know, really America's future as they continue to be the largest growing demographic in our country today. And I really wanted to talk to Daniel because the focus on policy is what I really, really respect about their organization and really looking at the focus of change, progress, whatever you, whatever you want to call it. I think policies and the allocation of money is the most important things uh, that we can do to you know create a better America, personally. Obviously, there's a ton of issues going on right now. I know I really haven't commented much on much about sort of the protest and and sort of what's going on in that realm, just because I wanted to find a guest that could you know speak more elo- eloquently than I can about it. You know, I think it's important to to talk about these topics. You know, not in a tweet and and not you know from a place of of, of passion and emotion, because sometimes that will come off. Uh, you know, different than you might intend to. So I really like, you know, the format of a podcast because you can talk to an individual, um, to an organization, um, to people for longer periods of time. And I think you can really hit on a lot of different subject matters. And, you know, we we sort of do that. We hit on, you know, everything, not just uh, the protest, um, but also COVID, you know, also what, you know, members of his community are dealing with from day to day basis before you know, even COVID happened before the protests even happened and what their sort of mission is from a policy perspective and, and the allocation of money uh, correctly is, uh, is, is a great conversation. I mean, I'm just uh, I'm so happy uh, he, he made some time for me because I know he's been really busy with, with tra- like he talks about transforming their entire organization to, to a virtual sort of uh, system now, which is uh, I think everybody's going through through that same thing, but specifically, you know, they really focused on events and getting uh, minority millennials to do meet the candidates events and to go into these speaker series and, and talk one on one and in groups of, you know, dozens and hundreds of people at one time. So it's, it's really been, you know, a pivoting act that 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 he and his team have had to do. But he says it's, you know, it's really going well. And they're looking forward to expand, you know, their mission to other states. They're currently just in New York, but he wants to expand across the country, and he's uh, he talks a little bit about that. But it's a really great and genuine conversation, and I, I wish we can have more of these <laughs> in our society sometimes. So um, I-, I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you get a lot out of it. And, uh, you know, I always try to, to, to really keep the podcast around business and, you know, how that can be a force for good in our society. But I, I think sometimes we have to take a step back and, and look at you know, different parts of our society and different things that can improve it. So while this is not a political discussion, I mean, we do touch on policies, but to me, that is much different than politics. To me, those live in, in two different arenas where uh, policies are, are usually, you know, black and white, where politics is usually amusement and, and circuses, right? It's, it's much different. Uh, so I, I hope this conversation comes across that way. That, it, that it's it's not political, it's just more conversation, right? How we can improve uh, the system that, that we're all, you know, living in. Um, I, I think that's a, it's a just thing to do is, is have a conversation. I think we, we need more of that. So uh, again, I hope you enjoy it. 
and I hope you get something out of it. And I appreciate you taking the time to listen. On some other notes, uh, Social Impact Wire is very, very close to go to beta testing probably later this week. So I'll keep everybody up to date on that. It's a, it's a big deal for, for me and it, it's taken months uh, out of my life to, to kind of try to build something like this to, you know, not only keep, you know, cause artists sustainable for, for a very long time, but, you know, also provide a platform for, you know, news and uh, for the ability for everybody to get their, their content news um, out there. So I, I really think it's going to be a very positive thing you know, for, for the industry, for the sector that we all care about. Um, so I, I will keep continue to keep you updated on that. And uh, yeah, it, it's really, really close. I know it keeps saying that, but I promise it, it, it's very, very close. So other thing, Impact Recipe, I, I updated some of the verbiage and kind of changed a little bit of the offerings for that. Um, so if you want to check out impactrecipe.com, just goes over some of the updates there. Um, I kind of rephrased everything to uh, affordable software development. Uh, for nonprofits and social enterprises. So I think it's a great way to to leverage like really, really high-end talent for software development for affordable prices. So that's kind of what I've geared toward it. Over the years, I've been fortunate enough to just be surrounded by great, you know, developers and very, very talented people and thought that it would be, you know, finally time to kind of open that up to the broader markets and, and uh, you know, use it for, you know, things that other you know, organizations or, or companies might need. So if you want to check that out, that'd be great. If you have any questions, uh, grant at causeartist.com. And I will get into Daniel's conversation now. Thanks. Have a great day. Bye. Usually how I like to start these conversations is, is just about an individual's journey, you know, and how they get to a place in their life where they're in the midst of sort of, you know, their life's work and something that they're really I mean, extremely passionate about it and sort of dedicate when they wake up in the morning to, to when they go to bed, right? I mean, something that important in somebody's life, there's a, it's usually a long journey to, to get there, man. So do you want to just talk about, you know, your path and in, in you starting your organization? Absolutely. You know, um, and again, Grant, you know, I'm grateful for this opportunity to, to speak about the organization. And, uh, you know, my journey is an interesting one. It's taken me, I'm 34 now. 34 years <laughs> to be okay and, and, and uh, accept kind of like who I am and, you know, how I was raised. I say that because I kind of came up in the systems. I was adopted. You know, I don't know birth father. And so that kind of plagued me a lot when I was growing up with regards to identity, you know, because my mother was white and, you know, I, I was told I was black, but I didn't really know. So I looked Spanish. So there was a lot of kind of like cultural identity things that really plagued my mind growing up. But I grew up in a middle-class Long Island suburban household that was also interracial. So my parents were black and white, so it worked, you know, it fit. Um, but I was also a pastor's son as well as a nonprofit son. And so I grew up literally in family that was very spiritually foundationally based, but also worked within the nonprofit sector. So that shaped my mind and that shaped my um, concept of, you know, giving back to society and giving back to community and utilizing your skill sets to do a better good. So, you know, having a social impact and that's been 30 years and more for my family, but, you know, I played ball and I kind of resisted all of that teachings that my parents gave to me. So I wanted to go down my own path and I ended up going to Rutgers university to, to play ball. And I stayed out in Jersey. I actually started a record label with my college buddies. And I, you know, I went through the music industry my entire 20s. So it took me until I was 30 years old <laughs> to eventually move back to Long Island and then realize 
who I am and what my purpose is, which is now minority millennials. And that's kind of how, you know, I even got to understanding to start the organization because I noticed there was something missing. Mm -hmm. It was a, a huge gap on Long Island. And that gap was opportunities to equity for minority millennials, which is, you know, what I am, what I'm considered. And that's how we started the organization. And it's really been starting to kick up some steam from, you know, three years ago. You know, when you started it three years ago, was it a conversation like with with a family member, with a friend? Like, how, how, what was the first conversations like? Be like, because starting a nonprofit is not easy, man. That, that's a you when you do something like that, you gotta know you commit yourself for for a while because just to get the status can take you know a while, right? To get like five hundred one c threes and stuff. So when that conversation first started, what was that like? Was it was it all about like we're gonna go at it from like a policy perspective? Because that's when I was like reading what you guys are doing. That's why I was like so inspired because a lot of people do a bunch of different things, but like there doesn't seem to be a lot of like, you know, policy driven sort of organizations aimed at sort of like minorities and like actually getting policies changed or created even, right? You know, yeah. for that sort of demographic. So to be very honest, um, the conversation was a discouraging one because I didn't even want to be back in Long Island. Mm -hmm. I wanted to executive in LA. And, but while I was in New Jersey, I was very much connected grassroots with Cory Booker and his campaign to be mayor of Newark. Yep. So I learned the value of being politically engaged within a city because Newark was going through a transform transformative process, a good one too. Yeah. Um, when I moved back to Long Island, my community, there was a $500 million development project going on in the backyard of my community, which is, has been historically disadvantaged. And not one of my friends or core groups knew who the developer was, mm. knew the county executive, or knew any of the political players. And so my mind was thinking $500 million. Right. I know the process of what that takes to get done. And when I realized that no one knew, or not only even knew, they weren't even interested mm. into what was going on, I immediately you know, just sensed that we had to get more connected and engaged with the Long Island political process. Mm -hmm. So I knew that the, the leverage, the foundational leverage to getting things done is always the political process. So that's why we started Minority Millennials first, which was to get people to bridge the gap between policy and culture. That was the first goal. Let's just bridge the gap between policy and culture. How can we make politics more appealing the same way that we make everything else more right. appealing from clothes to sneakers to you know, sports? Yeah, that's a, uh, it's the perfect. And, you know, perfectly well said man that's like exactly you have to make it you have to make it presentable in a non-boring way right if that's a good way to say it right because usually when you think of like politics it's like a bunch of paperwork right and reading policy is really boring it's usually created by like attorneys right and, and it's just like it's a very mundane to understand all this policy and it's just like so boring it's like uh, i'm just gonna go watch the celtics heat you know like it's just it's easier to do that right but it's like you said i mean $500 million, right, to, and you not even know about it, or like the community doesn't really know about it, like that's such a massive amount of money, right, that can do so yeah. many different things, right? But it's like not having a voice to be like, okay, but can we allocate this money differently? Or the allocation of money is just so important. And because there's yeah. so much out there that's always allocated, it's like, where does it go, right? Exactly. Like, where does it go? I, I think that more and more people getting active especially in these communities that, you know, like you said, disenfranchised or just 
have never sort of just paid attention to to that because they probably didn't feel like they had a voice, right? Like that's, I think part of every community, the struggle is, is that like, we don't feel like we can do anything, right? Mm-hmm. Our, our, our voice really doesn't matter. Like our, our vote really doesn't matter sometimes in, in a lot of cases and with the electoral college, you know, it's like <laughs> some states are gonna be red no matter what you vote and some states are gonna be blue. Like it just, it doesn't really matter, but locally it does matter. Oh, right? yeah. And that, that local allocation of money and that local voices is super huge. So when you first heard about the project, did you like call people? Like, did you start to look up your congressperson's number and be like, what's going on here? Was that really like the first project where you started to really look deeper at this stuff and say, hey, man, we need to start an organization that like does this full time? Yeah. So my father actually was very much involved with the political process of Long Island for a number of years. So I just basically started asking him questions and he would, he noticed quickly that I was kept asking every day, like, all right, what's going on here? Like, what do you want to do? So that's when I referenced to my, my friends, you know, and, and no one really understood what I meant at first. You know, they were like, like what you said, like, nah, I don't want to get involved with that. There's no trust. You know, there wasn't any trust with the process. Um, but we put together our first event, which was a meet the candidates event. And, you know, we had the district attorney come, the, the sheriff come, the, you know, the town supervisor come. And when our group saw that these individuals attended and not only attended, but were present in the conversation, it kind of sparked this idea that we may have something here. You know, it, and on Long Island specifically, there was a huge disconnect again between millennials and minority millennials, specifically black and brown. And, you know, so there wasn't, you know, you don't, you wouldn't see too many black and brown millennials in like a networking event or a political engaged event because there's just was a huge divide. And so this event showed a diversity that hadn't been seen in a long time in Long Island. And from that event, we grew into um, a, a number of different opportunities that we have now, but, you know, absolutely. It, it sparked the interest and the visual appeal of what could be. So when let's, let's like fast forward, like a year into like the organization, like, or, or guess when you framed it, like, what would that first year look like? Was there like certain like topics that you were super focused on? You know, was it like education? Was it like poverty? Was it, you know, prison system? I mean, there's all kind of different elements in, in any community, there's a plethora of things that need to be sort of solved, right? Was there like two or three like main like parts of, of the community that you wanted to focus on from just a policy perspective that you like, hey, we can, I think we can get things done here first. So I definitely personally had things in mind, but what we did was we put together these forums that were kind of an exchange of ideas. And our goal was to dissect the problems that people were saying that they had. Interestingly enough, a lot of people were not able to communicate those problems. And that showed how disconnected they were from mm. the, you know, because it was there, but they kind of like just, you know, let it be in the back burner of their mind and they just went on their day. And so just us mm. prying them to talk about the pain, the problems, the issues that their family may be having is when we started to get, you know, somewhat of an idea of the three problems that we wanted to address, which was housing on Long Island is, is a horrendous situation. Uh, obviously, student loans and training young people to get involved to potentially run for office. So that was like the three things that we initially focused on. Two policies, and the third was more educational training. What specific policy and like housing? Because obviously that's any sort of city is dealing with that now because it's just the cost of living in cities is just skyrocketed so much over the last, what, decade probably? I mean, probably yeah. when it started, but five to 10 years, it's just been crazy in, in almost any city. What, what kind of policies... Could you, would you even like, do you even look at to improve? Is it, is it 
policies that are already in place that you look at and say, hey, we need to change that? Or is it new policy that you're pushing? Be like, we need to put this in place because of, of certain things now that we face in you know our, the, the modern era of, of housing and the economy and things like that. So that's a great question. And it's very deeply nuanced. And I'll say this because the policy is actually the relationship, not an actual manifesto. I say that because what we had to do was develop relationships with not only developers, but local town officials that would understand our leverage and influence to then vote either yes or no to a specific project based on zoning. So mm-hmm. on a local level, uh, suburbia like Long Island, zoning is what makes housing projects so expensive because a developer can't build, you know, like 300 apartments because you don't, someone that's a homeowner doesn't want a big, sure. uh, development in their backyard. They don't want it to make it Queens. And so us building relationships with the developers and the town officials, we're then able to pitch specific areas or ideas and concepts that help broker that proposition, so to say. So it's not really a policy. It's just more so brokering the relationship and understanding what it is that we're looking for and how we can get that done. The second part of that is also establishing a relationship with the civic groups. So not only are we advocating for the developer and the elected official, but now we're advocating to the homeowners to say that if you really want us to stay here, a lot of our members were talking to their parents. Hmm. You know, this is of nimbyism, which is not in my backyard. And we had to talk to our parents about why it was so important to allow certain developers to build large development projects to fit more people in housing so that the, the apartments weren't so expensive to cover the cost of rent. Hmm. I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. So three, I mean, three years is like, I mean, it probably feels like 10 for you or, or it could have went by so fast. I don't know. But but I guess over the last, obviously, man, 2020 has just been like just Insane. incredible, man, from from yeah. all points of view. It started with, with Kobe, man. That was like, that was devastating, dude. Like that hit me uh, re- re- very oddly, man. I can't really explain it, but that was just a weird, a weird like blow, man. And then obviously COVID happened. And now obviously, you know, Black Lives Matter movement, the protest, all these things are happening. What has what has 2020 looked like? Because it, it probably looks a little different from, you know, the two, three years before. Has things totally changed within the organization? Just because they've have to, right? Like there's just so much going on that what has sort of shifted in how you do your day to day? Yeah, well, first, let me just say rest in peace to Corey Bryant because, you know, I was a huge Kobe fan. I remember that slam dunk contest when he had great hands, you know, and I was obsessed with him from that point forward. So it definitely was like an eerie feeling. I remember it was on that Sunday. It was like, you know, I was just in awe, almost to tears. Um, yeah, man. Yeah. So, it's one of those days you like, you know where you were, man. Exactly. It's, exactly. Which is one of those things. Ironically, we started off 2020, like going full steam ahead. I mean, we had just inked a number of different contract agreements with some, some major banking institutions mm-hmm. and news, you know, platforms. And we realized in our second year, just to kind of take a step back, the value that we had as being able to mobilize the minority millennial demographic into any type of sphere or landscape that we felt necessary. Mm. And because we understand that, you know, minorities will be the new majority as far as the majority of the population in America. Mm -hmm. So that's advertising dollars. That's just basic communication to multicultural communities. We've kind of built a, a value bridge between these communication propositions. So, you know, we, we had, you know, a whole full year of events planned out. 
being able to recruit minority millennials into high skilled, high paying jobs that weren't here before on Long Island. And then with COVID that all shut down. Mm-hmm. And I actually kind of went into a panic mode because <clears throat> I wasn't built off of the virtual platform, unfortunately. And that's sad because I'm a millennial. Right. Like, you know, we were still very much doing brick and mortar and physical events and the educational parts were all physical events. So the first two weeks I was, you know, doing, I was transitioning everything into virtual conversations and, you know, webinars and utilizing our contracts and everything that we had established into a virtual platform. And I was surprised by how quick, not only myself, but our members and our partners really was able to adjust and, you know, become agile with providing new value into what was happening with regards to COVID. We quickly became the go-to organization with regards to COVID for young people of color. Because a lot of our members were losing grandparents. Um, Dude, that's a great point. Yeah. We're losing family members. And so, you know, we were able to share resources. I, I remember one time someone asked, what do you do if, you know, the breadwinner of your family passed away? And it was such a great question because I didn't know the answer. And then I realized that, you know, this is something that we can bring to elect officials or possibly raise awareness about how important basic things like life insurance is. Right. You know, get back to the basics. So a lot of those type of conversations started happening. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, so much stuff with COVID is still kind of unknown, right? And, and if you yeah. lose a, a grandparent or a parent, like you can't even have a funeral. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like think about how, I mean, dude, I, I lost, you know, my mom a couple of years ago and, and like the most blessed opportunity I ever had was being there, you know, when yeah. she was passing away. Like that was super important for me. And like to not have that, I can't imagine, dude, like like what a person goes through on top of all this other stuff, right? Like the, the mental sort of drain, what a person has to deal with, right? Like, you know, they might've lost their job too the same week that they lost their parent or a grandparent and all this other stuff is going on. It's just like, I, I think we're yet to really see the toll, man, that, that this thing is gonna take. And then on top of that, obviously we, we come into the protest and, and sort of what's kind of been building up for for a long time, right? I mean, stuff like this doesn't come out the blue. It, it sort of, it, it kind of comes in waves, it seems the last, you know, two to three years. So what's sort of on the policy front again, like what are some of the things that, that your organization's looking at? Are you talking to the sheriff's department, to, to local officials? What's like, what's on the table right now to kind of deal with, you know, the police situation and, and sort of just obviously years of just, really just systemic issues with with just how how policies run out, how money is allocated to, to certain things and just everything going on with that. Where's Where are you guys at right now with that? Yeah, and that's another great question because, you know, you hear this concept right now that's very prevalent of defunding the police. Mm-hmm. And it's frustrating because language and marketing for a cause is so crucial. Man, and you read my mind, man. Yeah, like I've never witnessed such a horrendous title for such a serious course. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I almost think sometimes it was it meant to kind of like handicap the purpose of Black Lives Matter and what needs to be done. But that's a whole right. deeper conversation. No, I hear you, man. No, I, yeah. yeah, yeah, I hear you, man. It, You're so right. You're so right. Yeah, like it confuses me. So what we're doing is we have been in communication with the sheriff's office and been in communication with, with both Nassau and Suffolk County police departments. That's Long Island police departments for those who are, are listening. And we're, we're sharing a, an idea called the police reinvestment and opportunity act. And so what this does is 
it gives a five point plan to these officials to not necessarily defund the police, but take taxpayer dollars that go into police district funds, which is specific to Long Island, and reinvest that into healthcare, to mm. mental health programs, to housing programs, to food programs. My community is actually considered a food desert by definition. And that food desert has a direct correlation to those that were most impacted by COVID-19. And so what we're doing is we're navigating the nuances of a police union official who obviously is going to work to protect his police officers right. and those that have been impacted specifically the black community by police brutality. And I do believe this goes back to my journey here that being coming from an interracial family and, you know, married to an Italian woman, I have a lot of different perspectives that's been invested into my life. And so I'm able to extract and be empathetic to what's being said, but then at the same time, um, propose an idea that will make both parties right. happy to do this. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great perspective to have because I think, I mean, the only way things I think get better if, if both sides talk to each other, right? Yeah. When you sit down, you, you, like, what are the conversations like when you, when you speak to, whether it's a commissioner or part of the, the police union, are, are those conversations good conversations, right? I mean, is it productive? Are there things getting getting said that is going to move the needle? Or do you feel like, is, is it posturing? Is it just like, oh, this will pass too, and we just need to get through this time, right? Or, or do you think there's this is a different time where you think like things really are going to to change and things are going to going to be different from, you know, at least how they were before, right? Still a long way to go, no matter what. So we definitely have to be prepared for those token action items right. that have, you know, presented to the black community for five, six decades, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's the one reason why, that's the one of the major reasons why we created our organization again, is to kind of be indifferent to those token propositions. Because a lot of our members have not seen proof of progress in our communities. Right. And whether that's democratic or Republican controlled, if it's, you know, the church landscape, we're not seeing any progress in these most disadvantaged communities. And so we're not gonna accept token propositions. You know, the communication has been optimistic, but there is always a but after a proposition. And so that's why, you know, we're making sure that we're presenting things that are very difficult to wiggle out of, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're being proactive with our plan so that when it really gets into the conversation, there's no way to really get out of it without having all the things that we want in it implemented. Is there anything like specific or like top line items where it's not obviously nothing's easy, right? But is there like easy like agenda items where you'd be like, look, this is something we can do right now. Like, is there is there sort of like line? Because I think a lot of what gets sort of obviously the media and all kind of different things, it's like all you just see is like, police on one side, protesters on the other, you know, going back and forth fighting. Then you see fires and stuff. But there's like, there's no sort of like voice, right, for, you know, the movement. And, and conversely on the other side, right, there's not really a voice that, that comes from the other side that is productive, you know? Yeah. And, and is there sort of, when, when you're in these conversations, it, are there certain like agenda items that are, again, like just not, not easy, that's the bad word, right? But it's like, look, these are, actionable things that we can do over the next three months that will, you know, really, really 
create some type of change that you like you said you can't take back right like this is you know this stuff we could do it and it'll last for 100 years yeah so our local police department's budget just so you know is a little over 700 million dollars and what we're asking is basically to divest 10 percent of that and put that back into communities now one percent of that actually comes from taxpayers dollars that goes into police departments so in reality, the police department's not actually losing any money. They're just hmm. literally reallocating that into programs that are already there. And so uh, we do believe that the police unions who are very against, you know, very much against this will agree to that because they're not losing anything. It's, right. already, it's just that this is going to be specific to programs that are not really financially, you know, sound right now. So, the, you know, that 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 is the number one thing that we feel like we can really get you know, that, that, that 10% has basically $70 million. Yeah, that's huge. You know, so that's still a lot of money, but the police budget is $700 million. <laughs> so it, it, it'll, 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 it'll help our communities, but it's not really hurting the police union in a way that they're not, they're going to say no. So, and again, in those action items, it's housing security. So we're asking to put $15 million to a program that would create a thousand more, 1,000 more African-American homeowners in the next 10 years. And so, it, you know, is that, is that through sort of loan programs with like local banks, something like that? Cause like, how, how does that, like, how does that create? So that would be a number of different ways, but yes, definitely with local banks, you know, in partnership with also housing programs. Though. So mm. there's the Long Island housing Alliance or the Long sure. Island housing partnership here in Long Island that the county works with that gets funding both from county and federal. And then they're able to re reciprocate those funds into first-time home buyers that get like a, a $25,000 grant to purchase a home. The problem is a lot of times those programs run out of money and you only get maybe five or 10 people on Long Island that get access to these grants. And most of the time it's not black owned, you know, it's not black homeowners. So this money would be specific to invest into 1,000 African-American homeowners. Because once you actually have ownership in your community, there's a pride that goes into maintaining that community, mm. you know, and then there's also a pride that allocates itself into becoming a police officer because you want to police your own community, you know, and we've seen this in other cultures. I mean, you could talk about the Irish and Italians that um, when they first came here, especially, especially Irish, you know, that was, you know, there was Irish gangs that uh, the Irish gang basically turned into Tammany Hall, you know, and Tammany Hall resulted into you know, the New York City Police Department being ran by an Irish commissioner for the last 125 years, you know, and so, you know, that's, it, there is history in this. Do you see that more and more individuals are getting, getting involved now since sort of, whether it's COVID or, or the protests? I mean, it seems like for all the bad things that happened in 2020, it seems like it might be reinvigorating you know, people to actually, you know, pay attention a little more into everything, right? And look, I mean, video plays a huge role in this, right? Like, if George Floyd wasn't on video, none of this stuff would be happening, right? Like, policy would not be changed, right? Like, things would not be occurring, progress would not be getting made, you know? So it's obviously the awful thing is that it happened, but also the good thing is that it was being able to be seen, Right. Yeah. Well, 50 years ago, we would, you know, it's just it's just something that happens every day. Right. But since we see it, I think it's uh, and we're seeing it more and more. Right. I mean, as the years go by, I think more and more video pops up of, of certain things. 
you know, occurring that, you know, it just sparks something in people, right? Like people who have never really been involved with, with stuff before. I think it does feel different right now um, where more and more people are getting involved from, from all sides, right? And I think everybody can agree that something needs to be done, right? It, she was always what it is, <laughs> right? It's like, I, I do appreciate the effort, man, being taken to deal with these, with the policy and the allocation of money, because that is just so important, man, for the longevity of of every community. When you talk to, you know, individuals locally, have you spoken with anybody in other cities, right? Any, you know, whether it's other organizations in other cities, uh, whether it's other politicians in other cities, do you feel like the same things that is occurring elsewhere just from the conversations you're having? Yeah. And so, you know, I've definitely, I'm always speaking to my people in New Jersey and Washington, DC, as well as LA. And I think that the interesting thing, again, I'll say about Long Island is that it was America's first suburb. Mm. And why that's key is the concept of Levittown and the redlining is what plays a major role in the racial divide that we see today. And if we can draft this plan of reconciliation in Long Island, that'll translate into other parts and other suburbia across the country. And so that's kind of like what we've been talking about, you know, because a lot of these places are big cities. So you talk LA, Newark, or even, you know, DC, those are more urban you know, environments, whereas I'm based in a suburban environment. So it's a little bit of a different plan to get this implemented, but the gist is still the same, which is just reallocating this money into internal community improvement. Mm -hmm. How can we make sure that there's equitable opportunity for the most disadvantaged communities and its residents? And that's all that we're asking for. Um, We're not asking to get or eradicate the police department because that's insane. It doesn't make any sense. Um, And that really, you know, what, what all this is showing that this is one part of the problem though and so you know as an organization we also address workforce development and economic development so the reallocation of the police funds is one aspect of it the second and third part of it is making sure that companies are understanding the new majority and how to invest into that new majority so that you know america is sustainable if we're not careful and we don't really provide some type of leadership or clarity in this moment we could have a civil war in two or three years that would severely hurt the American foundation. I don't want America to be destroyed. I love America, you know, and I think that's lost in the communication because of the um, polarization yeah. in the moment. And so when I am talking to other cities, we're very mindful of that, you know, like we don't want to burn down and destroy our infrastructure. We want equitable progress in the most disadvantaged communities, which is specifically black and also native American mm-hmm. because of how America was founded on the backs of these two groups. And if we can fix that and address that, we'll have optimistic future in the next 10 to 25 years. If we don't, it's gonna be very pessimistic. It's gonna be very gloomy and dark. And so that's really the conversation we've been having. When you go back to workforce development, what does that look like from from the organization standpoint? Is that, I mean, before obviously everything happened, right? you could have events, so to speak, and, and sort of, you know, public public meetings where you can interact with individuals. Was it was it working with other other organizations to train minorities in, in, in certain areas maybe where they they never really saw opportunity before, whether it's like technology or uh, finance. I, I saw you guys were doing something with with finance where 
sort of train like uh, wealth advisors because mm-hmm. that, that's important. Is another thing where where you said like life insurance was so important. Yeah. You know, and it's just like well, a lot of a lot of inner cities and, and just poor communities, right? It's like they don't even know what a financial advisor is. Like I never knew that. Like growing up, like I didn't I don't know I didn't know what that was. Right? It's like I mean you you know there's there's so many jobs that like you don't even know exist. Right. Yeah. And you don't even know if you might be passionate about it. Right. Like growing up, I didn't know what like a web designer was or a developer. Right. Or any of these these words. Right. It's 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 really like foreign. Right. So like even introducing the people, introducing people to to jobs that they might not know about, but they actually become very passionate about. Right. So what, I guess when before all this happened, like what were some of the I guess stuff you were doing on that front? So I can't actually name the companies because of the sure. um, compliance issues, but what we've become is a, again, a bridge of communication, almost like a marketing agency to the minority millennial de- demographic and opportunities to high paying and skilled jobs. Yep. And one of the biggest things that you know, I started seeing in these meetings is that there were opportunities for these jobs, but the recruiter or the department, like say the, the chief diversity officer for these organizations really didn't have any grassroots investment into the communities that these corporations were based in. And so when they were doing these marketing or, um, you know, email outreaches, it was or, really bad. It was probably really bad. Oh my goodness. It just was a complete disconnect. And, and this is something that needs to get changed moving mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're not really allowed to kind of flex or be, you know, free with how we market our, our, these opportunities, you know, like yeah. I, I can't even tell you who I'm working. No, with. I hear you, man. No, I, that, that industry is, is very, is very, uh, it's got more regulations than any yeah. other industry. You know? And so, and what happens is, you know, like I know the salary of the opportunity, but I can't tell that person that publicly. And so that hurts the barrier of interest. Yeah, you for know, sure. That handicaps the barrier for appeal to say, I do want to take a, you know, a look into this. And this is a, you know, most of these programs are development programs. So you get paid to learn mm-hmm. and you get paid pretty good to learn. And, you know, and so I, I've been blessed to really take a look into specifically the financial industries and see how we can do a better job of just outreaching to our communities. Um, again, because, you know, even financial advisors, I think it's something crazy, like 3% are African-Americans and that's males, you know, it's, you know, and so as the as the population shifts, you need people that are able to communicate to multicultural communities. You know, and so these big banks are noticing that, and that's why it's so key. Yeah, I mean, just but just in general, I mean, the idea of you know taking the steps like home ownership is one, right? But then, you know, then having like a four hundred one k is another, right? Or, or having an IRA, all these different steps you can take to create a foundation, right, for your family, right? Yes. That's that's much. It's just a step that, you know, no matter really what race you are, it's, it's really more economics when you talk about stuff like that, right? Like poor people in West Virginia and Alabama, Mississippi who are white, are, they need the same stuff, right? Like it's not, it's, they want the same opportunities, right? They, they don't have it as well, right? Especially being in, in rural areas, you know, you can make a case it's really worse because they don't have, you know, maybe like the, the internet access or they don't even have job opportunities because there's just actually no businesses there, right? And then, you, so you have the lack of education too. So it's, there's so many, I guess my point is like, there's just so many people in America that the potential of America is still so great. 
Yeah. We still have, you know, a massive part of our population that could do so much, man. And it's just these big companies just really need to, I think, see whether it's finance, whether it's tech, um, whether it's even, you know, government or construction, whatever it may be, man, like for these big companies to really realize the the investment opportunity in people, in American people, we, we have so much power yet to go, man. And it's just, uh, you know, I, I just, man, I really appreciate what, what you guys are up to, man. And I can't wish you the best of luck enough, man, because it's, it's going to be, I think what you're doing is just, it's so important, man. It's invaluable. I, I wonder if other cities have organizations like yours, right? You need to like, <laughs> you need to franchise this. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's the five-year plan. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Talk about that. <laughs> that was my next question was <laughs> with three to five years, what's the, what's the future look like? We have our eyes set on 2024 presidential campaign because again, if we can get the infrastructure, which is happening and um, the inner workings of how we're addressing the inequalities in our communities. Again, it's three things, workforce, economic, and civic engagement, so public policy. And then be able to franchise that and relocate that into other states. Then we'll have a shared consciousness of what we're trying to accomplish. And you know, in the next four years, which is basically our five-year plan, for the 2024 election, when you are looking to tap into a certain demographic, because I think you made a great point with rural, and middle America, which is what you see is happening kind of right now with the Republican party. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. you know, Donald Trump has been able to speak to that group about their pain, right? And that's kind of like what our organization is doing with our specific group. You know, we're trying to speak and advocate on the pain of what they're not being able to have access to. And if we can re replicate that in other states, and show proof of progress, because that's key. We have to show mm -hmm. metrics of how we're helping people, not just saying we're advocating, but that people are becoming homeowners. People are getting 401ks. People are having you know, growth in their IRAs and all these different things. Then you know, we'll have a larger voice to who gets elected in 2024 and what America really looks like. And also just to piggyback on what you had mentioned before is, this is why policy is so important. What we see with the Democratic Party and the Republican Party is two platforms basically only advocating for their business interests. And that that and that goes down, that trickles down into finance mm -hmm. and to all these corporations that we're talking about. And it doesn't go into middle America, regardless mm -hmm. if you're black or white or right. you know Asian or you know Indian, whatever it is. And so that's why it's so important to make sure that there's a shared consciousness by 2024 of investment into the human capital investment of america so that we are sustainable for the next you know 50 years yeah it's it's insane man because like yeah i'm 35 so we're, we're very similar in age and you know a lot of the same issues you know growing up are still the same issues right it's like <laughs> it's like it's always the same sort of topics, whether it's like a presidential election, um, you know, a state election, it always seems to be the same issues. And it's like, how in, you know, 35 years, does this area look the exact same as it did 30? Like, that's, that's a problem, right? Yeah. There's some, there's a dis. I don't know exactly what the disconnect is, but I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's policy and people not, caring about the policy, right? Or, or wanting to understand it, 
that yeah. allocation of money being done correctly, right? Like these are kind of like little things, right? But those are the big differences, right? We can pack, you know, Staples Center or Madison Square Garden mm-hmm. or a random NBA game, but we can't, you know, you might have 10 people at your local town hall meeting. Yeah, right? exactly. And exactly. like, if we can change that, right? If we can have those meetings be, you know, televised, right? Or, or be packed, right? Like imagine what could get done, right? Imagine if your organization, you know, you had 200 people show up at, at an event for, you know, for, for whatever it might be, right? Whether it's education, whether it's housing, you know, and you live stream that, right? And, and you just showed up, man. Like just showing up and being there, that, that holds a lot of weight, man. And hopefully, oh, yeah. yeah, this COVID stuff, you, your organization would have grown, right? And, and now you're even stronger than ever to where it's like, look, we know what meetings we have to go to, right? We know what policies or what, what's on the agenda, you know, exactly. in, in a state house or, or even more local to be like, this is what we got to go after. This is what we have to, to, to be very, very precise on where you raise your voice. Right. I think going back to you said, it's like a lot of these ver a lot of these words, you know, defund the police or whatever. It's like, those are just combative words, right? Those, those don't solve anything. Right. Like you had that voice is so big. If that was taken to a place where you could actually, cause you look, you're not going to defund the police. That is any, it's just an irrelevant thing to talk about. Right. Yeah. So you're just wasting your time, your energy, but more importantly, you're wasting your voice, right? Because you could use that to actually do something that can change things, right? And I think really adjusting that voice to to stuff that that's so relevant and can be changed by by yeah. simply doing stuff, man, is yeah. uh, is powerful, bro. It's powerful, man. I I mean, uh, you you know, you said everything perfectly right, and that's why I'm optimistic. Mm-hmm. I'm optimistic because of individuals like yourself that seem to understand what's at stake here. And I just truly believe that we stay focused on making sure that communities don't look the same as they did in the past 35 years. Mm-hmm. You know, you should be able to see visual proof of progress. It's yep. so embedded in my mind that that's what needs to happen. And you can have that in three months. You can have that in a year. You can have that in five years, you know? And so um, that's our goal as an organization. If we can transfer that and kind of franchise that in other states and show mm-hmm. proof of progress, that's when I'll know that we can do our own national convention and talk about what we want the next president to really truly be about. And if they can't show proof of progress, you know, then, you know, we got to get somebody else in there. <laughs> do it. It's all about leverage. Yeah. You know? Well, I appreciate it, man. This is, uh, it's been a great conversation, man. I, I knew it would be. So uh, I'm glad we finally got to do it. I, I'm glad our, our time's finally connected, man. Best of luck going forward. And I think we're gonna we're gonna do this again, man. I think we should do a part two down the line a little bit and just keep keep the conversation going about man, just real topics, man, and, and really just just dive into the stuff that that really matters, man, and move the needle on a lot of this stuff. So appreciate you taking the time, man. Ah, I appreciate you, man. Thank you so much. I love it. Thank you.